sit down and buckle up. It's time for the Pirate Monk Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Pirate Monk Podcast. Oh, uh, joining you now from the thriving metropolis of Mount Pleasant, Tennessee, I'm your good friend, Nate Larkin, here with your friend and mine, the incomparable Aaron Porter. Uh, he's just a few miles away over in Murfreesboro. About an hour's drive, I've discovered, because Allie and I drive to Murfreesboro once a week to go over there for therapy. Uh, how you doing there, Aaron? I'm good. I started very peppy. And then kind of hit a lull, and I'm looking for Pep again. <laughs> okay, well, maybe this will be an invigorating conversation. I hope so. Uh, we got a great guest on the line. I think that'll be, uh, you know, that'll be a boost. Uh, meanwhile, I got to tell you, we've, go ahead. Yeah, we've got some big stuff going on. Yeah, so we do. Tell, tell about the big stuff. <laughs> I've been waiting to talk about this on the podcast. I suppose it still is slightly premature because we actually haven't closed on the property, but we're awfully close. Uh, you know, we're under contract. The financing is in place. Uh, you've, I, you've skipped ahead to the middle of the story already. Yeah. Back, back this train up. I am thrilled. I am thrilled to be able to break the news that Samson House very soon will have a house uh, and a wonderful house. Turns out that here in Mount Pleasant, Tennessee, an hour from the Nashville airport and two blocks from my house, sitting on a beautiful two acre lot, just a block from Main Street, is a historic home, a seven bedroom, three and a half bath house, originally constructed in 1900. A place that uh, in previous incarnations has served as a single family home, as an old folks home, as a group home for uh, mentally challenged adults. Uh, it will uh, soon become uh, the home of Samson House and a place where we can do retreats and intensives for Samson guys all around the world. I am thrilled beyond words. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah. So we've got all kinds of getting virtual uh, groups together in smaller groups in person to do 48 hours of frankness to do different focuses as a group in person right right and right. it will be i think i i maybe guys don't all know this story mm-hmm. that when the franklin samson group started the original group mm-hmm. it was good there was a core group of guys but it it was just kind of being a, a group and it was lacking kind of what you were hoping for with creating authentic community. Mm-hmm. And then what was it about six months in when you did the 48 hours of frankness, nine months in? Well, no, it was, a, it was a good year before we finally pulled it together. Yeah. So okay. we did, yeah, we did 48 hours of so, frankness. So you did a retreat. Yeah. And everything changed after spending 48 hours with the group of guys that you already you got to know, you knew the stories, it was all good. Yeah. But having that 48 hours together and walking with each other, what changed in the group after that weekend? Well, a couple of things. First of all, the purpose we designed the 48 hours of frankness retreat, which by the way, in in the years following, it was run more than 75 times around the country. Now it's been a good 
up, up until recently, you know, a gun on hiatus, I don't know that a 48 hours have been done, except in a few uh, isolated places around the country. Most Samson guys hadn't heard about 48 hours. But uh, the initial plan was, it became clear to us that a lot of Samson guys really didn't understand the path. They loved the community. They loved that they had a safe uh, a place to come, bring them real self, say the real truth. They were starting to make some real relationships, but they kind of fumbling and wandering their way around the path, didn't quite know what they were doing. So we said, let's take guys all the way through the path at 10,000 feet and 90 miles an hour, but at least we'll get all the way through it once, a first look in 48 hours. Uh, so that's what we did. And we did that first 48 hours uh, the first time we did it, Aaron, now we had guys show up from 16 states. Uh, we had uh, 60 guys, and that was just a launching pad, really, for Samson. So uh, I had the great privilege just a few weeks ago to uh, help a new group in Dallas, Texas, the one spearheaded by Patrick Peters, uh, and, and then a great bunch of guys down there. Uh they, they pulled some guys together, rented a wonderful place that could host 2022 guys. And we did 48 hours of frankness. And it really reminded me of the value of that experience. Because by the end of the weekend, everybody has at least dipped their toe in every stage of the path. Everybody's been a sponsor, a Silas. Everybody's had a Silas. Everybody's taken a, a look at their life, a systematic look in many cases, deeper than the one they've ever taken before. Uh, so it's highly informative, educational, and motivational to do that 48 hours of practice. So one of the things that we will do at this new property in Mount Pleasant is we'll invite guys to come, and I'll show up and you'll show up, Aaron, and we will lead guys who really want to find their feet in recovery through 48 hours of frankness. That's one thing that we'll be able to do at this new property. And I'll tell you, I was talking to a person who was at that recent 48 yeah. hours of frankness, yeah. and he was saying how, you know, every week or multiple times a week when he is in a meeting, we read through, we are set upon a yeah. path. Yeah, and yeah. We read through the path. Yeah. That all of a sudden that came alive. Yeah. That that part of the meeting kind of centered, oh yeah, this is what, this is what we're doing. Yeah. And it's not, it's not just a bunch of words yeah. that are read yeah. while you're waiting for the sharing time to start. Uh -huh. Right. So, so that is happening, but to make that happen, we've got, we've got two things we're throwing out today. This is the first mm -hmm. that if, if God deigns to help all of this go through smoothly, <laughs> please I'd like something to go smoothly for yeah. once that, we are looking at building some bunkhouses upstairs, basically mm -hmm. getting it ready to house 25 to 30 guys. Oh, you're pushing it there. I'm saying 20 to 25. Retreat. I think we're going to top at 25, Aaron. Maybe, who knows? Oh, Maybe we can fit. I, I think I think my plan will work. Okay. All right. We'll see. Okay. My my plan got to, I think, 29 beds. Okay. Um. Anyways, there's there's just a lot of stuff that needs to be done by people that know how to use a saw and, you know, build a bunk bed, do some painting, get the house ready for that. Mm -hmm. And so we would love to have some weekends where, you know, heck, 
We can bring some sleeping bags. We can sleep on the property and just knock out a weekend of getting stuff done so that this can get operational. Yeah, yeah. And uh, in the next uh, issue of the Noble Brief, uh, a briefing, the monthly uh, newsletter of the Samson Society, will include some photographs of the property. It really is a beautiful property. I cannot believe that we've gotten it and gotten it for the price we have. Uh, the board of Samson Society has stepped up and, uh, you know, so we've been able to acquire the property. Uh, but still, it's going to take some renovation and improvement to make it suitable for what we want. Uh, you know, it's got four big bedrooms upstairs, but only one bathroom. So what we'll probably do is take one of those bedrooms and turn it into a dormitory style bathroom with multiple showers, toilet stalls and sinks, and then put bunk beds in the others. Then we've also got more bedrooms downstairs. We've got a nice dining room that can feed. I think we can feed 25 guys in that dining room. We don't have a meeting room large enough comfortably to seat that many guys to do work, but there is a detached two car garage that we can configure. We can convert into uh, a meeting room, but that'll take some work and it's going to cost some money. So anyway, if uh, as you're listening to this, uh, we're also going to have to do some furnishing of the place. So we're going to need tradesmen. We're going to need we're going to need some some cash and equipment and, uh, you know, some construction materials. Uh, I'll be on site. Aaron will be over here a lot. we can make this thing happen. I'm excited about it, yeah. but I'd love to make it as much as possible an effort from the entire society. And maybe we can generate a list of the projects. Yeah. And yeah. if, if, if you're a person that's like, you know what, I can take a weekend, get over there. Right. And right. you can just stay there. And yeah, we got like this. Yeah, we got if you're if you are a skilled tradesman, we have some plumbing issues that need to be addressed. We've got some electrical issues that need to be addressed. Uh, we've got central air on the ground floor of this wonderful house, but window shakers upstairs. I want to be able to to uh, improve the air conditioning and heating on the second floor, probably with many splits. If that kind of if that's in your field, maybe you can contribute there. Uh, okay, so that's one thing that's happening. We've got a lot of exciting things so- happening. Yeah. yeah. So the other is for people of a whole different skill set. Right, right. Uh, Tom, Tom Mocha's getting excited about getting the Samson House publishing up and running to get helpful books that are going to help Samson folks on their mm-hmm. journeys, whatever they are, in recovery, in connection, in just uh, retaining and growing in their identity in the gospel while they're mm-hmm. doing this journey. Right. So that's a it's a, a daunting task, and a couple things that are needed are people who are capable editors and people who are good at or have experience in formatting for uh, books that are printed, which is a whole that is a whole thing. Uh, and maybe maybe there are guys out there that say, "Oh, I would love to be a part of helping make that happen." So if you have that set of skills, maybe you don't wield a saw, but you can wield a 
And that's probably a good thing to say. <laughs> maybe, maybe you can cut up a manuscript and make it look better and sound better, right? Nice. Yeah. Yes. Uh, <laughs> refurbish the manuscript. Yeah. Um, if that excites you, uh, then contact Tom Mocha. And I don't, do you have his yeah, email so, address in your head? Sure. Absolutely. It's Tom. That's spelled T O M. At not T H O M. No, no, no. It's it's actually T O M at Samson House. There's no P in Samson, by the way. Samsonhouse.org. Tom at Samsonhouse.org. If you have uh, the skills, encouragement, whatever, to help in the Samson House publishing uh, uh, a project, write to write to Tom. Uh, and if you want to help with uh, uh, the new property, which I think we're going to call Samson Manor. Uh, you can reach me, Nate, at SamsonHouse.org, or my private email address, Nate Larkin, at gmail.com. Or you can bump into Aaron at one of the many uh, virtual meetings that he's attending these days and offer your suggestions, services, ideas, whatever. Yeah, for sure. I'd love to stick around after a meeting and chat. Okay. All right. Well. Uh, All right. Well, there's there's the announcements, but that's exciting stuff. It is. I am. I am. Totally psyched. And I'm psyched also for Italy, which is coming toward us now at breakneck speed. Those Italian weekends, uh, the first and second weekends in October. And uh, as I say, week after week, uh, you know, the national retreat, the first weekend in November, filling up quickly. We already have more guys registered for the fall retreat almost three months in advance this year as attended last year. So, uh, yeah, if you have not yet, Exciting. yeah, if you haven't registered yet, you're running a risk of, we're going to have to cap it. Uh, we really can't fit more than a couple hundred guys in the main room for plenary sessions. So we're going to have to cap it at some point. I don't want you to miss out. If you haven't registered, you don't have to pay the whole thing up front for a small, uh, deposit. You can secure a bed, secure your place for that fall retreat, which is going to be an amazing time. All right. Well, I'm exhausted and pumped up. Yeah, me too. Me but we, we got an interview to get to. Yeah. We got a good conversation here. We do. We do. And thanks again to Justin Schwind, who's working out there, man. He is uh, something else at uh, making contact with potential guests and, uh, you know, arranging these interviews. So, Justin, thank you for helping us arrange this conversation with Tony Ingracia. We'll be back with Tony in just a moment. On the Pirate Monk Podcast. Well, welcome back to the Pirate Monk Podcast. Hey, we are privileged to have with us this week on this episode uh, none other than Tony Ingracia. Uh, he's the director of the Freedom Counseling Service and director of the Power of Purity Ministry in St. Louis. And as I understand it, a native of that fine city. Welcome, Tony. Thank you, Nate and Aaron. It's a blessing for me to be with you today. God bless you. Well, it's good to have you. Hey, I wonder if you can give us, first of all, uh, you have been involved in church life for a long time, right? That is correct. Yeah, I'm 65 years old, which I can't believe, by the way. I'm not kidding you. I think I was 17 like yesterday, and I tell young people all the time, don't blink. If you blink, you're going to be 65. 
And I, I became a true believer in Christ when I was 16. So uh-huh. I am right at my 50 year anniversary of knowing Jesus as my savior. Oh, okay. good. So all you right. avoided all kinds of moral problems and any kind of trouble because you became a Christian so young. Because that's Aaron, how it works, right, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> Don't you wish it worked that way? I wish it did work that way. You know, so the, the, how did the, it work the, for you? Makes me think of those, uh, the three tenses of salvation. We, we were saved, right? Justification. We're being right. saved sanctification, we will be saved, which is glorification. So believe me, I'm in the process of being saved. Philippians 1, 6, being confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will continue it until the day of Christ Jesus. Uh, Ephesians 2, 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. So I love that that word workmanship there is the word poeme, so we are God's poetry. So anyway, believe me, I'm a work in progress and um, thank God for his mercy and his grace. Yeah, yeah. An unfinished now, ha- poem. I love that. That's a yeah, beautiful yeah. way to see it. Yeah. The unfinished poem. Now, have you always understood it that way, Tony? Or did you have a misapprehension of your status as a Christian, your status as a son of God? Did it cause you any distress during the early times of your walk with Christ? If I had to say yes or no, I think I would say no. I've always Uh understood that Jesus' work for me was complete, you know, that all Uh of my sins are forgiven, that I am a child of God, that salvation is not based upon me. It's not based upon what I do or don't do, my good works, You know, and I've always believed, I don't know where you guys are at on this doctrine, but what, what they call eternal security. Yeah. I believe once saved, always saved the blood of Christ is very powerful and very sufficient. So I've always been secure as a son of God. You know, I, I've certainly struggled in my relationship with the Lord and certainly struggled in various aspects of my own heart and life, my walk especially in and around the sexual area myself, even though I became a believer when I was 16, I struggled and struggled and struggled and struggled and struggled for many years uh, with my sexual gift. And it Mm -hmm. seemed like I was powerless to resist sexual temptations. So I would act out in that area of my life. And early on, I thought to myself many times, Tony, what's wrong with you? Why can't you get this sex thing under control? It seems like sex controlled me instead of me controlling sex. And it took me a long time to begin to figure that out. Can we pause on what you, you very purposefully said you were struggling with your sexual gift. I've never heard anybody phrase that sentence in that way. And you definitely did it on purpose. Tell me why it was important for you to come to that vernacular. Let me just say that this is the way that I see it. I understand that our sexuality is a gift that God has given us, a wonderful, awesome, beautiful, mysterious, delicious, erotic, wonderful gift. So I just like to refer to it as our sexual gift. I've been part of a men's group for over 20 years here in the St. Louis area, and and myself and my guys, we refer to it as our sexual gift because that's what it is. 
What do you think the detriment or danger to not seeing it as a gift, but this oppressive curse, because you could call it a gift and still say, and yet I was being controlled by it. So what are the dangers when we don't start with that foundational understanding? Well, it occurs to me that, you know, there's a right way and a wrong way to use anything, right? For example, as simple as a toaster, if you have a toaster in your kitchen, the toaster is designed for a purpose, to make toast, right? Well, imagine if I had to drive a spike nail in my backyard into a piece of wood, but I can't find my sledgehammer. So I go in the kitchen, I get the toaster and I bring it out and I'm trying to drive a spike nail. I'm going to destroy the toaster. I'm going to do damage because I'm using the toaster in a way that's inconsistent with the manufacturer's directions. And so God, I, I totally, I, I totally thought you were going to say if you use it as a rubber ducky and bath time fun, because that also is a wrong way to use a yeah, toaster, but I'm, I'm tracking right. with you with so, driving nails. So the point being that, you know, in much the same way, our sexual gift is something that God's given us. There's a right way and a wrong way to use and express and experience our sexual gift. And just like, dude, if you use the toaster in a way that's completely inconsistent with the manufacturer's directions and instructions, you're going to reap damage. And what many of us have done, Christian men, what I myself did for many years is I was taking my sexual gift, but I was using it and expressing it in ways that were completely inconsistent with the manufacturer's instructions. And so is it surprised, therefore, that we reap damage and destruction and pain? So yeah. there's something to be said for uh, doing this thing God's way. I think we have everything to gain. Uh, let me ask you this, Tony. Now that you have the benefit of hindsight and experience, uh, like me, you've reached you know the, the ripe age of 65. Uh, now you have clinical experience. You have education. You have you know you got a, a lot of track record with this. Looking back. Why do you think you went in the direction you went with the utilization of your sexual gift? Well, that's a very powerful question, and I'm not sure that there's a simple answer to it, Nate, because mm -hmm. I would advocate that human beings are very complicated and sexuality is pretty complicated, and yeah. therefore I'm not sure it's a simple answer and I think there might be different nuances, kind of like a diamond ring is one stone, but there's different facets. Or if you're going to make a cake, mm -hmm. a lot of different ingredients go into the cake, you know. So yeah. there's different ingredients that contributed to the damage of my sexual self. And I, I can just begin to name a few of them. You know, the first that occurs to me is what I would call the flesh. The Bible mm -hmm. talks about this propensity or orientation that we have without God towards sin. You know, mm -hmm. if you took a watermelon and a machete and chopped it open to see what's inside, I think that if you took the human heart and you could somehow cut it in half and see what's in there, there is a grain of sin in the human heart. And I think this proclivity is different in different human beings. And for whatever reason, I myself 
had this proclivity towards sexual sin. It just seemed like it was a weakness to me. I just was attracted to it. I was very weak. I was tempted. I couldn't resist temptation. So, and, you know, I understand theologians call it different things. You could call it the flesh. You could call it the Adam nature, the lower nature, the sin nature, the earthly nature. It's whatever makes me want to sin. So I have this problem within myself that I like sin. I like to disobey God. And I happen to have this proclivity towards sexual sin. But it's much more than that. During my adolescence, I was growing up. Every boy goes through puberty. And several things, ingredients began to get mixed into the cake mix of my sexual self. For one thing, my father was a very, very sexualized man, and he had a Mm -hmm. ton of pornography. And I think I found my dad's porn when I was 10 years old. And it was not a benign event for me. It was very, very powerful. You slid open his closet door and there were stacks of Playboy, Hustler, Penthouse magazines and these triple X books. Yeah. And when I found it, it wasn't benign. It was very powerful for this young boy. And something sunk its claws into me. And I was very attracted. And I went to look at this porn over and over and over and over again. I mean, I believe my addiction started very young. I remember sitting on my mom and dad's bed and literally opening centerfolds all around me, surrounding myself with these images of these naked women. And it was a very powerful experience. I think part of what made that so powerful for me and my situation was in my family of origin, I think there was a kind of setup. Uh, My father was a very angry man and my mom was rather cool and distant. And Mm -hmm. in my family of origin, nobody ever said, I love you. There were no hugs or touches or kisses. I have no memory, Nate, whatsoever of ever being tucked in bed, having someone touch or comb my hair, sitting on a parent's lap and having them read a book to me, ever getting a hug. There was this conspicuous lack of emotional or relational warmth or affection So I didn't understand this when I was a kid. And by the time I think I was eight, nine, 10 years old, I found my dad's porn. And I think it was much more than just a sexual event for this boy. I think it was an emotional event because I saw in the pornography people doing something that I was longing for that I didn't even understand. And those longings were correct. They were appropriate. They're they're normal human longings. Will somebody touch me? Will somebody see me? Will somebody hug me? Will somebody love me? Will somebody be affectionate with me? And I'm seeing this pornography, people touching and hugging and enjoying each other. So I think I was trying to get something from the pornography that was even deeper than the sex part. Yes. So I think there was this emotional neediness that was profound. And I think that followed me, by the way, then into my teenage years and my young adult life. And it's like the sexualization of intimacy. I I was Mm -hmm. trying to get out of sex 
and pornography something that I was longing That's for, a but it was very thing that you just said. It was like the sexualization of intimacy. Most people conflate those two pretty inextricably. We talk a lot about intimacy being a lot more than that, but intimacy does include sex, but the sexualization of intimacy means what? Well, that's a very powerful question, and I'll do my best to articulate it. As you said, intimacy includes sex, but intimacy is intended to be much more than just sex. And I didn't know how to be intimate in my relationships. I didn't know what the much more was, how to talk, how to touch, how to communicate, how to be present to others how to offer yourself to others, how to listen, how to be affectionate, how to connect with someone, how to be close with someone. All these values that that enrich relationship that the human heart is longing for. And since I didn't learn any of these skills, the closest thing I knew was to have sex. If we can just have sex, then that means we're touching and I'm close to you and I'm enjoying you. So I'm trying to get all the values of relationship and intimacy, but only through this one connection of sex. And so it it makes sex exaggerated. It makes yeah. it bigger than it's supposed to be. I'm trying to get more from it than it was ever intended to provide. So something becomes very distorted and twisted and unhealthy and dysfunctional. Wow. Wow. That's really important. Go on, Nate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, you you make it through the minefield of adolescence. Uh, I imagine you had some expectations for marriage. How old were you when you married? I was 26 years old when I got married. Mm -hmm. And I want to mention one other thing about my adolescence, just because it is a very important part of my story. And that is I was sexually abused by two older females during my period of puberty and adolescence. uh And I never understood that. It was only later when I got in my own therapeutic process, in large part because of the disaster of my marriage. I got married when I was 26. The marriage was an instant disaster. At the epicenter of the disaster, the marriage was the issue of sex. Mm -hmm. And so in a matter of time, I started acting out in the context of my marriage I was a young man who had a sexual addiction, although I didn't understand it at this point. This sex addiction followed me into my marriage, and I thought that marriage would fix me. Marriage would fix my problem with sex because now I have a wife and I can have all the sex I want. And so I won't have any more problems with sex. Well, I got married and I found out that marriage doesn't fix your problem with sex. In fact, it exposes your problem. It's going to reveal the problem. And so it just it just became a gigantic mess. I began acting out in the early years of our marriage, and I eventually became involved in several adulterous affairs. And, you know, Jesus said in John 10, 10, the thief comes to steal, kill and destroy. So the enemy was trying to close the deal on the complete and utter destruction of my life, of my marriage, my family. 
And so I never did get caught by my wife, but at one point, the strategic point, which I attribute to the work of God in my heart and life, I went to my wife one night and I confessed what I was doing, that I had been acting out, I had been having these affairs. And I said to her, I don't want to do this. I I know that it's wrong. It, it's a bad day, Nate and Aaron, when you look in the mirror and you hate who you see. Yeah. I, I was acting out in violation of my very own conscience. I knew this isn't who you are, Tony. You're supposed to love God. Your your life is supposed to count for the kingdom. I didn't know what was wrong with me. So I told my wife, you know, if you want to divorce me, I guess you can divorce me, but I don't want to divorce. I want to get fixed. Something's wrong with us. Uh, sex was virtually non-existent in our marriage. We almost never, ever had sex in the early years of our marriage. And it was driving me crazy. And we didn't understand what was wrong with us. Well, later when we got in our therapeutic process, we learned that my wife actually had a sexual aversion because of Mm -hmm. the profound hurt and pain and tragedy of her own heart and story and what happened in her life around her sexual self before I even met her. She was profoundly broken, and I was profoundly broken around my sexual self before I even met her. So two broken people meet each other. Two people, you put two people together who are a mess, and do you know what you get? Healing. You get a perfection. You get a bigger mess. (laughs) Oh, a bigger mess. That makes sense. We we were a disaster (laughs) right out, out of the gate. So I made this confession to my wife. We cried that night. We prayed together and we drug ourselves to a Christian counselor. And we started this therapeutic process that was profound and amazing. And it turned out to be completely different than anything I would have expected. And what happened in this therapeutic process, if I had to put words to it, I would say that God invited us into the story of our lives. I never Mm. understood my story. I didn't understand all the ingredients that got put into the cake mix of Tony that screwed me up so much. I didn't understand how deeply and profoundly my family of origin had affected me, this absence of intimacy in my childhood, finding my dad's pornography and the sexual abuse and other things, all these ingredients that had twisted and distorted my emotional self and my sexual self, and then how I was trying to find healing and equilibrium in my own heart and life through sex, basically, and I was learning to use sex in very unhealthy ways. Can I, I want to ask this specific question because here you are uncovering the specifics of your ingredients, your, your cake mix of your life. Um, there are ways that that process can happen that haven't seemed very healing that I've seen. Just people unearth all of these ingredients. The one way that I've seen it and, and I've read some of what you've written that seems to indicate this is the case, that before that, the gospel is just, Jesus died on the cross for my sins, so all my sins are taken care of, so I should stop feeling ashamed. It's very general. 
But as you start unearthing broken things in the past, not just sins, but also trauma you went through, then the person and work of Christ can be specifically can specifically deal with healings with each of those individual pieces, which then changes the whole gospel narrative and the narrative of who you are. Is that what you started to discover as you started picking those pieces up and seeing the ingredients that had gone unacknowledged, or was there something else that made that a healing process? Aaron, that was very beautiful, the way you articulated that. You really did a good job there. I really liked it, and I think there's a lot of truth and value to the way that you articulated that. I agree with you. I don't think the gospel is just something we believe in our head one time. Jesus died for my sins. He rose from the dead. I believe in Jesus. I open my heart to Christ. I receive Christ. He comes into my heart and life. I'm saved. My sins are forgiven. And so now, like, I'm done with the gospel. I believe the gospel for my salvation. That's true, but it's much more than that. It isn't just something we believe one time in our head to be saved. The gospel is a template that God invites us into and we live the gospel. And the gospel then applies itself to every nook and cranny of our life and of our story. And I really think this concept of story is incredibly significant and powerful. And, you know, I'm a licensed professional counselor, and I've come to believe that my primary job as a counselor is to help people understand the story of their own life. I've come to believe that most people don't understand the story of their own life. And, you know, we live in this wounded, broken, fallen world. We all experience pain and hurt and disappointment and trauma and tragedy. So we all carry this pain and this tragedy, this trauma, this hurt in our pain, in our soul, right? So I believe what God wants to do is that he wants to take us on a journey into our own story. And God knows these very hurtful and painful and tragic places that have occurred in our life. And when those bad things happened, we didn't know what to do with it. We weren't healthy. We didn't know how to manage it in a healthy, godly, appropriate way. So what the devil does is he uses strategy. He takes those very painful things and he perpetrates the kingdom of darkness upon us. So we believe lies right there and bondages and captivities and chains come upon us and torment is placed upon us. So what God wants to do is he wants to journey with us into our stories, identify these very wounded, broken, tragic places, and God wants to perpetrate his kingdom and his light into these dark places of our past. So where there has been darkness in my life and soul, let's say, for example, a girl was raped when she was 13 years old, and she's never, ever dealt with that. Well, God wants to go there. Jesus wants to go there. And where there is darkness around her soul, God wants to bring light to exchange that darkness. 
Where lies came upon her, God wants to bring truth. Where bondage came upon her, God wants to bring freedom. So where there was death, God wants to bring life. Where there was torment, God wants to bring peace, right? So we have this work to do with God around our stories, around our hurt and our pain. And I think what many of us have done, I know what I did, is, dude, when we get hurt like that, we have to do something with our hurt. Every person is in the pain management business, whether they know it or not. We're in the pain management business. So when I get hurt, I've got to do something to try to manage that hurt. And if I don't have a relationship and walk with God that I can process that hurt and pain in a healthy way, an appropriate, truthful, redemptive kingdom way, then I process my pain in unhealthy ways. And what I did, my default mechanism, which I think is true for many men, is that we learn to use sex as a primary pain management tool of our life. And so I'm using sex now to seek emotional in equilibrium. When I feel pain, if I'm upset, I feel confused or fear or disoriented or depressed or whatever it is, I turn to my orgasm and to sex as a pain management tool. In the verbiage of recovery, they talk about trading your FB for your FG, your feel bad for a feel good. And I feel bad right now. I'm depressed. I'm upset. I'm angry. I'm confused. I'm overwhelmed. I don't want to feel bad. I want to feel good. And what will make me feel good right now? Well, I learned that, you know, I had this dysfunctional relationship with my penis and my orgasm. So I learned to turn to sex and my orgasm to make myself feel good. So now I'm using sex in a way that sex was never intended to be used. I'm using it to try to achieve uh, emotional calmness in my life. I I'm putting sex in the place where God should be in my life. So the first real step out of that pattern was realizing that that was all connected to your story in therapy with your wife? Was that really that first aha that you started to see a way out? Yeah. If I had to say yes or no, I it doesn't occur to me that it's the first thing I learned. It seems way more confusing to me than that. I, I yeah. don't think it was a linear process. Like I learned this, then this, then that. It, it was like very confusing and it's not black and white. There's a lot of gray area in there. And so I think I learned this stuff kind of slow over a prolonged period of time. But certainly a big part of what I learned is the importance of story. And I started understanding the brokenness of my own story. And as a result of that brokenness and pain and trauma, how I learn to use sex in profoundly unhealthy ways and therefore for me to be healthier had something to do with me learning to use sex in a healthier way, in an appropriate way, and in accordance with God's heart, mind, will, and plan for human sexuality. 
Say, Tony, how essential was it for you to have a guide and a trustworthy traveling companion on this healing journey? Is this something uh, that, you know, given the right book, you ever could have uh, accomplished on your own? Absolutely not. Nate, 100%. Nate, Nate might be pitching that Samson the Pirate Monks could have fixed it for you. So maybe just, you know, think about how you're answering this question right now. Well, I have no doubt that that could have really helped me on my journey. But no, it hasn't been a journey I've, I've done alone. I believe that God's pretty smart and he set this thing up the way he did for a reason. And God intends for us to live in community. And the kingdom of God comes forward in the context of community. That's why God made the church, you know. That's why God had 12, Jesus had 12 disciples, you know. We send boys into combat in Afghanistan or Iraq. We don't send anybody by themselves. We always put the boys in platoons. There is a brotherhood that is on this journey together and we have each other's backs. So along the way, God has brought strategic partners and relationships. I worked with very se several various counselors that I've worked with. I've had strategic brothers and alliances in my life that have been part of my journey, mentors. And I've been part of a men's group very much like the Samson Society, ours came to be called the Power of Purity. I've been in a with a group of men for over 20 years now. We meet every Thursday night. And so this is a journey that we do together. And in fact, I have a teaching, a vignette that I do that I call the MBG principle of God's kingdom. And I think it teaches us something of the kingdom. It's me, my brother, and God, M-B-G, me, my brother, and God. And the idea that the M and the B is, uh, the M and the G is not enough. If it's just mm -hmm. me and God, my life will not be healed. I need a brother in the mix. Me and a brother and God creates the possibility of, of wholeness and health and healing. And if I had to choose a proof text, I'd use James 5.16 right there which says, confess your sins to one another so that you may be healed. Yeah. And God showed me something about that scripture that I think was amazing. There's actually three personalities involved there. Me and my brother, it says, confess your sins to one another. So there's me and there's you so that you may be healed. So presumably there's God because God does the healing. And there's yeah. a sense in which I think we could say when the Holy Spirit authored that scripture, it seems like he made a mistake because you think he would have said, confess your sins to God so that you may be healed. Mm -hmm. But he didn't say yeah. that. He said, confess your sins to a brother so you may be healed. So yeah. in the economy of God, uh, we cannot do this alone. There are no Lone Ranger Christians. Let me let yeah. me throw out one other proof text for your response that came up in a virtual Samson group this morning. Thinking about Elijah, depressed in a cave. God is very nice and comforting, but no matter what God did to draw him out, Elijah just came back with really whiny ass answers about how he was the only one and he was so depressed and so isolated. 
And of all the people that should have been able to fix a guy in the weeds, you'd think God would have no problem doing that. And yet Elijah made zero headway. He just kept throwing it back in God's face. At which time he said, all right, just get up, start walking. And along the way, he meets his brother in the faith, Elisha. Yes. So there's there's yeah. another text to go with it. Respond to that one, Tony. Well, I think it's <laughs> it's beautiful. You just told the story there, and I don't know if I ever thought of that story in that way, but isn't it interesting that in his aloneness and in his confusion, his depression, his disorientation, it's like he was becoming lost to himself. And yet Mm -hmm. God brought another human being, another prophet, a comrade into his circumference. And that allowed him to get kind of his legs back under him and reoriented. So I think it's a beautiful observation from the passage. Well, Tony, I'm keeping an eye on the clock here. Uh, I just know that a good number of our listeners have resonated with what you've been sharing with us this morning. Those of us who want to follow up, if they want to make contact with you, is there a way they can do that? Absolutely. Yes. I have a website, powerofpurity.org. And they're very welcome to take a look at the website and you can contact me through the website. I also do a podcast called the Power of Purity Podcast. I publish an episode every Tuesday and I'm right behind you. I think this week we published episode 320. Okay. So there's a lot of resources. Well, if, if you're doing it every week, you're going to pass us up soon. <laughs> I, offer, <laughs> I offer a three-day intensive for men. So yeah, we have different resources available. I've written several books. It's all there on the website, powerofpurity.org. Fantastic. Well, it's been a great conversation. Thank you so much, Tony, for, uh, first of all, uh, for your work in the kingdom, for your, uh, your your faithfulness, your contribution in this field of endeavor. And thank you for finding the time today, making the time to talk with us and with our listeners. Absolutely, Nate and Aaron. God bless you. I appreciate it. And we will be right back here on the Pirate Monk Podcast. And we are back on the Pirate Monk Podcast. Well, that was fun. <laughs> it was, yeah. I like Tony. I like that guy. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Power of Purity. Check it out. Check out his podcast. I love anybody that helps tie the gospel and community into the practical work of maturity yeah. and recovery. That's right, right, right. That right, is right, key. Right. It is so easy to just focus on any one of those and miss the bigger picture. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and the vital connection with community. I love the fact that Tony's been with these same guys all these years and recognizes that, you know, I don't think any of us, I don't know that any of us can actually comprehend the gospel alone. But I also, whether that or not that's possible, I do know none of us can carry the gospel. We actually need brothers (laughs) to help us carry the enormity of this wonderful gift called the gospel because 
we're always dropping pieces of it and forgetting it. And then, you know, if we're on our own, wandering off into the weeds, this is a, this is a cooperative effort. This is something we have to do together. It's part of our limitedness of humanity. It's part of what makes us who we are. We really do need each other on this recovery journey. I think it's also a great reminder about the process that mm-hmm. when you're when we're deep in the weeds, it's easy to just think about the product we're looking for, whether that's sobriety right, or whatever right. recovery. Yeah, yeah. But man, we've been talking about this same stuff for so long. And yet there's always new stuff in our own lives. We're like, well, this is what it looks like now. Here's the new process. Yeah. And, right. Yeah. And each version of the new process has never excluded the need for community within it. But yep, right. It's true. To just kind of shrug and be like, it's okay. This, I'm not dead yet. Yeah. When I'm dead, I'll be done with this part of the process. But until then, <laughs> I'm just going to be in some version of this process. So, it's a, yeah. so lighten up, Buttercup. You're not yeah, dead yet. Yeah. No. Yeah, sometimes I feel like I feel like the Alzheimer's patient, you know, who at this point, you know, can hide his own Easter Easter eggs, you know, and everything. <laughs> <laughs> everything's a surprise. I feel like I'm rediscovering the gospel you know, <laughs> with, with the same astonishment, uh, you know, almost every time I turn around. Uh, but, but that's you know, that's so thing. the way it's supposed to be. Yeah. I mean, that should be like the one thing that remains astonishing, especially because yeah. it, it hits yeah. us in these different angles. We think yeah. about a new yeah. part of our story and we get to apply the yeah. gospel to it and go, wow, that too? Yeah. Yeah. It never gets boring. I mean, you're super Mm. old and it's not boring to you yet. So that's encouraging (laughs) to young people like me. Yeah. There you go. There you go. Uh, I had a birthday. I'm on the wrong side of 40 now. (laughs) I'm, I'm I'm sliding down the hill towards 50 at this point. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not going to ask you how long ago you had the 40th birthday. My 40th. Sixth birthday, but a couple weeks ago, I don't know what the date is. There you go. There you go. Okay. See, that was a little misleading. You know, I had a birthday. I'm now in my forties. I said, I said, yeah. I'm, on the, I'm, I'm on the wrong side of my forties because now I'm sliding uh, down towards fifty. Oh, I see. I got you. All right. Okay. No, no, it's it's all it's all over now. <laughs> uh, I gotta uh, tell you, life. You know, life gets, Aaron, I got to tell you, life gets better. My 50s are better than my, were better than my 40s. And my 60s, I got to say, are better than my 50s. So I hope the trend continues. I do too. And yeah. then we'll die. Okay. On that morbid note, it's probably time to wrap this episode <laughs> of the Pirate Monk Podcast. <laughs> uh, so I will say... Until next time, I'm Nate. I'm Aaron. And we are your pals on the Pirate Monk Podcast. The Pirate Monk Podcast is produced by members of the Samson Society. Send your feedback or questions to piratemonkpodcast at gmail.com. Please give us a five-star review on iTunes and share the podcast with a friend. For more information, please visit samsonsociety.com.